Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Mulatala. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Tim Lomas. Tim is a researcher, a writer, a lecturer on well-being with a particular interest in cross-cultural perspectives on well-being. He's also one of Europe's leading experts on positive psychology and was a program leader at the University of East London in applied positive psychology. Tim has published numerous academic papers in high-profile journals and he has also written for The Guardian, The Times, Psychology Today and been featured in titles such as Time Magazine, Scientific American, Le Monde, The New Yorker and GQ. He has released three books, The Positive Power of Negative Emotions, The Happiness Dictionary and Translating Happiness, a cross-cultural lexicon of well-being. I was lucky to discover him and his work via an article online. It led me to his research on untranslatable words relating to well-being. Shortly after, I watched his TEDx talk in Zurich, which he gave in November 2018, on this very subject. I'm lucky to speak a couple of languages, and I felt something beautiful and almost exotic and also powerful about discovering words that can expand our sense of being, which we'll discuss in depth. In this conversation, we start with Tim's unusual journey from a seminal trip to China as a teenager, his interest in Buddhism and theories of the mind, which later connected him to his research, his PhD on masculinity, meditation, and mental health. The wonderful thing about a guest who's written so much is that I had lots to ask him about. So Tim talks me through what positive psychology is all about, the value in considering our words either new words or borrowing them from other cultures and even the ancient Greeks. So without further ado, I give you my very wide-ranging interview with Dr. Tim Lomas. Enjoy. Tim, thank you so much for making the time. It's such a pleasure to meet you. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. Thanks for inviting me. It's nice to be here. So I've taken to inviting my guests to start by telling their own story to our listeners to, to get started. So where do I start? Yeah. Um, where, that's the fun part, wherever you fancy. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I guess I can just say, you know, I grew up in London, very lovely family, mum and dad, brother and sister, I, you know. Look back, and I'm very fortunate to, I think, have generally had a really happy childhood. I mean, school was a bit rough sometimes, but generally I did okay. Very into music and playing football. I'd have loved to become a musician. I guess I'll say a bit more about that. But I suppose a good place to start the story, because it's also relevant to the topic we're talking about and the work I do now. When I was a teenager, I went to China to teach English for six months. Like, I wanted to do a gap year. I wanted to travel. And in fact, China was my mum's idea because she wanted to, an excuse to visit. I'd obviously been interested in meditation and Buddhism, for example. You know, I loved reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And I read that over and over again, I think, when I was a teenager. So anyway, I had a, a fascination with China and East, so-called Eastern cultures anyway. 
And my mom suggests that sort of, oh, that sounds great. So I went to China and that was just a really formative time, I think, like personally, but then also in terms of the work I've ended up doing. So it really expanded my horizons in lots of ways, like emotionally and intellectually, physically, obviously. But, you know, this included encountering new ideas and practices, you know, that were so unfamiliar to do, really outside my cognitive horizons. So I know we're going to get on to talking about my work with untranslatable words and my research on cross-cultural psychology, but I really trace it quite directly back to there. At least that planted the seeds, if you know what I mean, because, you know, I traveled around China and Tibet and visited Taoist and Buddhist monasteries, encountered these concepts and practices that were so unfamiliar to me. I mean, to the point where I really didn't understand what was happening, what was going on. I didn't have a frame of reference, really. And even when people try and explain concepts like Nirvana or the Tao, I really had no framework for understanding them. I'm not even sure I do now. (laughs) I still don't really understand. But then I had no idea, but they were completely unfamiliar. So, you know, now I'd call them like an untranslatable word, but that doesn't really do them justice. They were just these profound mysteries that really struck me. And, you know, I already knew that I wanted to study psychology at uni. I had a place in Edinburgh. I was interested in theories of the mind and theories of well-being, but realizing, say, with Buddhism, it had such a detailed, intricate, in-depth, you know, theory of the mind of psychology. It was it really was a detailed psychology in itself. So I was like profoundly interested in it and moved by it. Then had that strange experience when I came back to study psychology of like, so much of what was present in Buddhism and all its insights and theories just weren't there in the psychology that I encountered in Edinburgh, with some minor exceptions. Like it was early days of like mindfulness becoming a popular phenomenon. This was like late 90s. So there wasn't that much research on mindfulness. There was more research around, for example, transcendental meditation. But anyway, there were some elements of practices and ideas associated with Buddhism filtering into psychology but hardly any and so I really had this sense of the psychology that I was encountering it being super western centric and missing out on so many important ideas and insights that I'd seen in Buddhism and presumably like that was only a very limited encounter with Buddhism I'd had so you know even if I was aware of much being missed out upon given how wide the world is and how many traditions and other cultures and regions there are they would be similarly missing from psychology. So I had this real sense, really, of just the field as I was encountering it being very partial, Western-centric. I mean, good in its own terms. It has done a lot of great work on the terrain it's covered, but just there was other terrain it wasn't covering. So I just had a a real vivid sense. So I should then say I took a bit of a detour because like, I was always really into music. So even through uni, I had bands on the go. I love songwriting, playing guitar and singing. And I had had a ska band called Big Hand kind of scar but it's more kind of continental spanishy sounding scar and we really tried to make a go of that like and i kind of did it full time for about five or six years i would say not quite full time because it's so hard to make money doing music you know i did part-time work as a psychiatric nursing assistant you know because i was obviously interested in psychology and that was strange interesting work i mean it was very flexible which is handy but it was also very meaningful and had some very intense experiences, very challenging at times, but it was really meaningful doing that kind of work. So I I really appreciated doing that work. But at the same time, we were trying to make a go of the music and we were recording, did loads of tours and, you know, recordings. And I would have loved to have done that as a career, to be honest. 
but it's so hard to do. And then we spend a lot of time in rusty old vans at the motorway at two in the morning. And Oh, I've been there. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, well, I was a singer songwriter. That's why I moved oh, to London yeah. in 2000. Even though I got a whole career in fashion before I became a mindfulness meditation teacher and consultant, yeah. I really gave a big go of it oh, throughout yeah. my 20s. I think I only stopped because, of course, when you get on stage at 1am, it's hard to be fresh at work the next day. <laughs> yeah, right. So I appreciate that. But it, do you miss being on stage? Do you miss making music? I do, I do. I mean, we do it very occasionally. I mean, we gig so intensely. We were doing like 100 gigs a year at a point, you know, and it was just too, I mean, in hindsight, it was so much to do. And, you know, you get to the point where you just miss just seeing friends and hanging out with family. But at the same time, you do have intense experiences and go to these amazing festivals and visit different countries. So I did love doing it. And then... That's amazing. It was so cool. I really loved it. And then, yeah, the process of being creative and then performing. And then our music was really very upbeat, happy music. You know, like giving people a good time and people dancing away. And you see people dancing away and smiling and having a great time. Not to oversell ourselves, but people did seem to have a good time to our music. You know, and that was just really nice to see. It was really uplifting. And I come away from shows feeling super energized and connected to people. So that was, it was really lovely. Yeah. That's such, I, I wish that everyone could have that experience because it's really precious and there's nothing quite like it. It's really precious because like sometimes I think, what was I doing? Like all that pursuing that dream. But at the same time, I'm so glad I did because it was a bit of a, a mad dream, but like an amazing thing to do. And like, I'm glad I did it, really pursuing our passions. And I think if we hadn't done it, hadn't given it a go, I'd be thinking, well, what if I had? And now I can think, well, I mean, we could have had some breaks and got a bit of luck that we might have made it even further. But at the same time thinking we really did give it our all and had some amazing times. And yeah, it was just such an, a formative time as well. You know, exploring, I guess, laying down roots in a certain sense, pursuing like careers and stuff. So it was in my late 20s. I got a scholarship to do a PhD like in London, University of Westminster. But that was really handy because we were still doing the band pretty full on during the PhD, but the it was so flexible that I could just be on the road and working and studying. And, you know, it was a nice transition, to be honest. I mean, it was quite hard work because at the same time, touring stuff isn't always that conducive to also getting the computer and trying to write stuff and do reading. But I was able to do my research at the same time, which involved the research itself was in London because the PhD was looking at the impact of meditation on men's mental health. So I'd had that longstanding interest in meditation and Buddhism, which, you know, helped me get this the PhD position. It was just a really interesting study. It was intersecting different disciplines. My main supervisor was a sociologist. So I was using a kind of narrative interviews to explore men's engagement with Buddhism with a strong focus on like gender and masculinity. You know, the premise being that men might be socialized into disconnecting emotionally, but that's not like inherent to men specifically. So if it was uh, an emotional style that they had sort of learnt in a sense or been socialised into, then they could unlearn it and be socialised into other styles. So the premise was that through meditating, this was a systematic process of introspection, right, through which they could develop emotional awareness and emotional intelligence, which would then be conducive to better mental health and to well-being. So there was, you know, getting their narratives or engagement with meditation, but it wasn't also just about the meditation. It was about the wider sociocultural context in which they meditated so you know the, the community in which they meditated was also really important in terms of you know from a gendered perspective encountering other 
masculine norms you know so if you might say outside the meditation context there'd be masculine norm around drinking alcohol let's say but you could find that reversed in a sense within the meditation community where the norm will be around abstinence instead you know so or whereas outside the community there might be a norm around emotional toughness and stoicism inside the community it was flipped around there'd be a norm actually a norm around being expressive and caring and it's interesting there's still interesting dynamics because to the extent that it is, is actually a norm then there might be issues with not exhibiting that kind of behavior within the community. So, you know, really interesting dynamics from a kind of sociological perspective. So it was partly around men's experiences of engaging with meditation and then the wider Buddhist community. And I did my research at a lovely community in London. I sort of also, in a spirit of, what's the word, like ethnography, I suppose, to join the community and went on retreats with them. And I loved that too. That was, that was a great experience. And I met just some beautiful people and really was so grateful for that opportunity. So that was, you know, meeting those. And then there was also an interesting cognitive neuroscience component where I was, I had a slightly little portable EEG machine where I could measure their brain waves while they were meditating. Oh, that's fun. It was fun. <laughs> Although I felt sorry for the people because like I carry around this little briefcase and like, I'd unpack it all and then have to put this goop on their head and then put the electrodes on, which that was okay. So I measured their brain waves while they were meditating, but then I had them do some cognitive tests which to be honest, were just a bit boring, like, you know, watching these numbers change and had to keep paying attention. So tests of attention, this notion of men developing emotional intelligence through meditation, but kind of triangulating that through various strands of evidence. You know, so in addition to the narrative evidence from the interviews, seeing whether you could trace any development or changes in relation to cognition through attention tests and through the EEG measurement. So I, d- I did my research in London and then I could still do some band stuff like um, outside the actual data gathering aspects of the PhD. So it was, it was a strange cross over time, but also really fascinating and stimulating because I loved both aspects. I was really, you know, still enjoying doing the music, but also feeling the need to transition away from that. And then like this PhD was perfect. I was so grateful. Like, And, you know, I was appreciative of the fact that getting PhD scholarships is kind of, they can be tricky to get anyway. And especially because I'd fallen outside of that kind of academic stream and taking that tangent, you know, into music. So it's nice to have the opportunity, you know, to to get back into academia. I loved doing the PhD, I think. Don't know how many people can say that, but I would genuinely did. That's wonderful. And I had that in mind all throughout. Like this is a really fortunate kind of career path to be on or experience to be having. So even while I could, you know, if I could be ever tempted to moan about aspects of academia, like, well, I've got to do this piece of admin. I was like, well, you know, in the scheme of things, it's still a pretty nice way of life. So I I, know, I think I still have that now. Mm, that's really wonderful. So how did you get into the positive psychology? Actually, may I ask you a favor? Could you explain what positive psychology is for our listeners? It may be a good starting point because they may not know what it means. It's, it's disputed and contested, you know, what positive psychology is, where the boundaries are. Roughly speaking, I like to say it's the science of well-being if I was going to put it in a phrase. But then even as I say that, you'd struggle to then differentiate it from other fields. You can make a similar claim, for example, about humanistic psychology or aspects of psychotherapy or psychiatry. One way it tends to get differentiated from fields like clinical psychology or psychiatry is that they're all focused on well-being. But you could look at well-being in more deficit-based terms as the absence of undesirable phenomena or more asset-based terms as the presence of desirable phenomena. So one 
a metaphor that's often used is like a spectrum, you know, from negative territory, like a negative 10, through a notional zero to positive territory. I mean, it's a simplistic metaphor. There's lots of issues with it, but of course, it's useful as a humanist. If you might see fields as such as psychiatry and psychotherapy and medicine, they're interested in curing or ameliorating illness, physical illness and mental illness. So on that spectrum metaphor, that'd be bringing people up to this notional zero where you're just, you're trying to remove the absence of undesirable phenomena like mental or physical illness. Uh, you know, so obviously that's so important. But then what positive psychology emphasized was say someone was at this notional zero, hypothetically free of physical and mental illness. Are they flourishing? Are they living life to the full? Are they truly experiencing, actively experiencing positive phenomena? You know, whether physically vitality or, you know, in the mental space, like happiness, meaning in life and so on. So positive psychology really wanted to focus on that positive territory. Positive psychology really did shine this light on this positive territory of the spectrum. And that was really valuable. So it is focused on well-being. So it's things like happiness, positive emotions, strengths. They're all quite individualistic constructs, if you will. So, for example, looking now at the socio-cultural contexts in which people might flourish, the systemic factors that might influence people's abilities to, to flourish. People, depending on their circumstances, might face different barriers or obstacles to flourishing. It's not an even playing field. So the field is evolving in interesting ways that's paying more attention to the context. That's fascinating. And also, not to get too, too sidetracked, but it's evolving in other interesting ways too, because even the notions of what positive and negative mean are becoming kind of critiqued and refined. So my colleagues and I have been involved with this effort to develop what we call like second wave positive psychology you know because when the field first developed the notion of positive psychology means identifying phenomena you could deem to be positive in some way like positive emotions positive thoughts positive values and so on but then you've got to ask well what, what does positive mean and then there's different meanings to the word positive even just with those two meanings of positive and negative you can get into some interesting seeming paradoxes not really paradoxes but they sound like it whereas something could be positively valenced and feel pleasant but negative in its outcome or utility so be detrimental to well-being so something might feel good but you know be harmful in the long run or vice versa certain emotions might feel unpleasant or negative but nevertheless be conducive to one's well-being so with these kind of Interesting nuances, that's what we call the second wave of the field. Critiquing and problematizing what the notion of positive and negative means. We're still interested in well-being and flourishing, but you get into this interesting terrain where an emotion might be categorized ostensibly as negative, at least in valence terms, but actually could be use, useful to one's well-being. I love the notion of waves and metaphors and then thinking about how the field's evolving in uh -huh. ways. So this focus on socio-cultural context might yeah. be considered like a third wave of the field. That sounds really interesting. I discovered mm. your work via an article and this article that came into CNBC called Happiness Hidden in Fascinating Untranslatable Words. Oh, yeah. And so the thing is, recently I've been mulling over a project called We Need a New Word, which is a whole different conversation. Yeah. And so that clicked through to your website, which is wonderful for anybody who's interested. There's plenty of resources about your work. And that's how I discovered your positive lexicography project. And so, of course, before this interview, I watched your TED talk a couple of times, which interestingly you gave in Zurich in my home country, though I'm in Geneva. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I loved it there. It was a great place. <laughs> and so I understand that 
your project on positive lexicography started when you heard one of your colleagues you used the the Finnish word sisu. Oh yeah, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, I suppose in the first few years, trying to find my feet in terms of what I was interested in doing research on. I mean, I had my obviously long-standing interest in meditation and Buddhism, and obviously that carried through my PhD. So I had an interest in carrying on my studies into mindfulness and so on. But like, I'm also just always keeping an eye out for other things and possibilities that seem interesting and new and unknown. I just I find myself just drawn to things that I'm, you know, I'm curious about and that are new to me. So anyway, in 2015, I went to this conference in in Florida, positive psychology conference there, and. I stumbled across this presentation by this Finnish researcher. I always like to give her a shout out, Amelia Lati. She's this great Finnish researcher. But her PhD was focused on this Finnish concept of Sisu, which she would, I think, describe as a form of you know, extraordinary grit and courage and determination. But, you know, it's not synonymous with those terms or reducible to them. Her whole point was that, that it's a quite unique construct and that her PhD was focused on kind of elucidating its internal dimensions, I think, the factors that constitute Sisu, and as well, you know, exploring its significance because she would present it as kind of integral to Finnish identity and culture and how they see themselves. So it's a fascinating PhD, but also her point was, it's not a concept that's only applicable or limited to Finnish people. It has some universal resonance or relevance, which she was sort of encouraging positive psychology to pay attention to and embrace the concept, as in this is a concept that's relevant and missing from our network of concepts in the field. This should be kind of added, put on the table and explored. And for some reason, it just really struck a chord in me. And I might trace that that resonance back to my time back in China and encountering those unfamiliar concepts because, you know, I hadn't given any thought at that point to so-called untranslatable words, but just the fact that this was a concept that could be relevant and meaningful, but wasn't included in psychology, I think kind of set off trains of thought, linking back to the, the recognition I had in, in China and then going to study psychology about psychology, missing out on concepts and ideas and theories from other cultures. So I got back to London and I was visiting my my folks and having a chat with my mom in the kitchen. You like, she's like, oh, tell me about the conference. So I was like, well, I said this really interesting talk about this Finnish concept, Sisu. And I say, you know, it's a term that doesn't exist in English. And then like my mom speaks a bunch of languages, like she's like fluent in German and so on. So we were thinking of other words that exist in other languages they don't have an equivalent for. You know, and at the time I wouldn't even have used the term untranslatable because Like, I'm not a linguist. It's not something I paid much attention to. Yeah, of course. Other than just having had those, I guess, experiences and insights in China. But in this conversation, we were thinking of you know, words that I now call untranslatable. By the end of the conversation, we figured, well, it'd be super interesting to just try and engage with these words and collect them and to analyze them. Yeah. Um, if you did so, well, it could have lots of value, including, you know, enriching the field of psychology in terms of the concepts it has and its study, you know, but also you can make a broader point about sure. psychology, maybe even academia in general, being pretty Western centric, you know, in terms of the concepts it has, not at least in the fact that its dominant language is, is English, you know, like in international journals and conferences. Sure. So its default language is English. But then from this linguistic perspective, you realize that English is 
incomplete, let's say, because that's the whole point about untranslatable words. They're, they're concepts. Of course. It's not that you can't translate them or describe mm. them, but the, the main way of understanding the notion of untranslatability that I use is that a concept lacks like an exact equivalent in one's own language. Like you could probably, you mm-hmm. perhaps could describe it with a, a sentence or a phrase or a paragraph or sometimes longer. I mean, it might take like a whole book to describe a concept and especially to get all its nuances and meanings. And like a concept like Nirvana, you could read more than a book and you still wouldn't necessarily get it. But nevertheless, it's like this idea that a concept in another language doesn't have an exact equivalent in one's own. One way to look at that is that this other culture has noticed and identified a phenomenon and given it a label that one's own culture hasn't. And there's all sorts of implications and significances about that disparity. You know, perhaps the phenomenon is more salient in that culture. Maybe they've just valued it for some particular reason, possibly relating to factors like, you know, geography or climate or tradition or religion. So there's various reasons why this might have happened. But either way, you can get to this state where a given phenomenon in the world by world, you know, either uh, in a world of thoughts and feelings or the world around us, like there's a phenomenon that another culture has paid attention to and noticed, named and conceptualized, but one's own culture hasn't. And then to the extent that one's culture lacks those terms, one's own language lacks those terms, then its knowledge, let's say, is is incomplete. So with respect to well-being, I mean, let's just narrow it down, even just in terms of like feelings or emotions, you know, you might think that there's certain feelings or emotions that other cultures have identified and labeled and conceptualized, but English hasn't. And then to the extent that English hasn't, then the study of feelings and emotions in psychology would be missing out on those, those feelings and emotions. And obviously that applies to just the world generally. It's not just emotions and feelings, but everything, but like in the context of psychology, you could just think of psychological phenomena. Like, has it been identified in English or not? And if it hasn't, then it's less likely to be on the table in psychology and part of its remit. So, you know, you see such potential for expanding the horizons of psychology beyond this Western-centric context to incorporate ideas and insights from other cultures. I mean, every sentence I say is like glossing over all these important nuances. Like when I say incorporate, that's really difficult because you can't just take a concept from another culture and assume that one knows it or understands it, right? Because structurally concepts are embedded with all these layers of networks of traditions and values and so even if i engage with an untranslatable term i won't understand it at all in the same way that someone who's you know native to that cultural language will do and so some people based on that will say well you can't you can't manage it or it maybe you can't even try to but you know, I disagree. And I think there is value still in trying to engage with these concepts and trying to learn from them. Anyway, yeah. there's, so just to make the point, there's all kinds of caveats <laughs> and debates around everything I'm saying, but that's the general principle. Sure. I was thinking about one of the words that you mentioned in, in your TED talk, like passaggiata in Italian. Yes. I had the chance to spend quite a bit of time in Italy and in the South of Italy in particular. And if you hang out any length of time in, in Naples and in South of that, then you immediately understand passeggiata. There's also that leisurely stroll, like you described really beautifully, that one does after lunch or after dinner. And that's often with family. And and it's funny because in that one word, I literally am projected into another place. 
And I think that's the beauty of looking at these other words. I don't know how other people are going to be understanding them. Like you were saying, that's the difficulty, I guess, of bringing up these untranslatable words. But then there's still that opportunity you're giving people of creating images and context for them outside of what they know. Definitely. Yeah. That's a really nice example, you know, because also to make the point about the nuances around untranslatability, it really is hard to capture because you might just say, well, like strolling kind of conveys it, which like yes and no, like in a sense, yeah, because you could, if you were to describe it as strolling, strolling around, it's not completely wrong. It does capture something of it, but it doesn't begin to really describe its significance and what it means. And it's just not a phenomenon we tend to have, for example, like in Britain, because it's like often too cold or rainy to want to be strolling around after dinner. Whereas, you know, it's much more suited to a place like Italy. And then like you say, when you, you know, I've yeah had the pleasure to visit Italy too. And we loved it there, my wife and I. And you see people engage in this and we did it ourselves because like the people we were with, like Wobble, have a passeggiata. And then we, we walked around them after dinner and had nice cream and looked at the water and so on. And you think, you can get into this mode of life. Well, one way I look at these words is like they're almost like windows or portals onto like another landscape, right? Totally. That's exactly what it is. It's beautiful, right? And it's so cool because I almost think you can like look through the window and see this landscape. And maybe when I was in, when we were in Italy, I could almost like walk through the portal for a bit and be, be in that landscape. And like, I'm not, you know, I won't know the landscape in the same way that an Italian person will this conceptual landscape, let's say, but I'm just having a little sample of it or a taste of it. And at the very least, I can look to the window and see there's this, you know, an activity, a mode of being, a way of experiencing associated with this term passaggiata. So it, it opens up onto this kind of a landscape of possibilities. Sure. For me, that's how I look at all these words. They're, they're windows onto a, you know, a new possibility, a new way of being, a new activity that you can at least glimpse, maybe yeah. even step through and experience for a while. Yeah, I actually, I read in that, there was a great article you did, you were mentioned in in Time magazine a few years ago. And um, the Spanish word, um, I'm going to have a terrible pronunciation, estrenar, which conjures the uh, the feeling of confidence one gets when they are wearing new clothes. Uh-huh. That <laughs> is such a thing. <laughs> I get the thing. And, yeah. and it was so funny because it felt like... Um, I felt very relevant to be looking at these words. Yeah, that's a cool one. Yeah, I know that recognition too. Because it's interesting, when I think about these words, sometimes I put them into two classes, two categories. And you're like, it sounds a bit corny, but like they could be like, what's the word? Old friends or, or exciting strangers, right? Basically, this idea that some words really capture experiences I've had. And I know that experience. And then I didn't have a word for it, but... I know the experience and now I'm grateful to have a word. It's like, oh, well, I've done that. I know this, I think, you know, and then there's this immediate time of recognition. Like I'm familiar with that experience. Like I've had that and then I can give voice to it. So that's like sure. the first class. And then there's a second class, which is like, whoa, I have no idea what that word is signifying. Like that's describing a phenomenon or an experience that I've not had. And that's super intriguing too. So I don't know, go back to my window metaphor. For the first class, I can look through and the landscape seems familiar, like it, maybe it's similar to my own landscape and I've maybe I've even been there in some sense. Whereas the second class of words, it's like a completely 
unknown vista. So, you know, in the context of Buddhism, for example, some of those words, let's, uh, uh, you know, we've spoken about Nirvana as an example, yeah. like, I have no idea what that means or ex- have nothing to compare that to. So it's just so intriguing and I want to find out more. So like you say, there's some words where there's an immediate kind of glimpse, there's an immediate resonance, a recognition, because mm-hmm. I feel I've experienced that before and now I can give voice to it. And then there's a second class where that's completely new and unknown to me, but I'm super intrigued to maybe try and get there or experience it. Sure. Actually, I want to link both of these. Do you know the, the teacher Pema Chodron? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Love her. So I did a course with her a little bit earlier this year. And I need to say she's very, very funny on top of being an amazing teacher and scholar. And oh, nice. she described the estrenar uh, concept. She was at some point in her course. <laughs> I can't remember how she brings this up. She talks about what it's like when you put on a new cardigan or whatever. (laughs) So it's interesting to see that it happens at all levels and that it's valid for me and you and a Buddhist nun. So That's pretty nice. I just thought that was a pretty good proof point. That's reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. So your project is crowdsourced, so to speak, right? How how do you gather Mm. these words? It's a bit of both. I mean, it's partly my own efforts. You know, I just keep stumbling across words and engaging in searches for them, some of which are more or less systematic. But then I also, I put the list on my website just to invite people to contribute. Because from the start, you know, like I say, I'm not a linguist. I don't even really speak many other languages. I speak a bit of Chinese from my time there. I did French at A-level, but beyond that, I don't really speak other languages. So I would be reliant on the expertise of others. And plus, I wanted it to be this collaborative project where people could share their language and their culture, you know, because I think people like to do that. They like to say, these are ideas and practices that we've developed, that we're proud of, that we want the world to know about, in a sense. So if I could provide like a forum for people sharing that. So that's been lovely because people have been getting in touch. I think I nearly have maybe almost 1800 words now, maybe half of them, if I was the roughest, a crowdsourced. But the crowdsourcing goes beyond the words themselves because I don't feel like I'm an, an expert on the words themselves. So, I, you know, I do my best sure. to understand them and provide an accurate description. And I draw my descriptions from like dictionaries that I can find and descriptions in you know, academic papers and books where I can find them. But at the same time, you know, they're still just partial. And I'm also aware of the irony of trying to translate an untranslatable word or describe it. So anyway, I put a description or a rough description on my website, but I always present it as just, a, it's a work in progress. They're not like final or complete descriptions. And sometimes people get in touch really helpfully say, well, yeah, that's accurate, but you could add this, or maybe that's not quite accurate. You could change this. And that's really helpful too. So it's the crowdsourcing isn't just about the words themselves, but people just helping me develop my presentation and understanding of the words, which is, which has been so helpful. There's no way I could have done it, you know, done it on my own. So it's also just been really nice people getting in touch and sharing ideas and, and words with me. Yeah, I did spend uh, a couple of months ago, I did spend a, a good hour, hour and a half sifting through because y- you did a good job in, on your website to to categorize them. So if someone was looking for something specific, they could they could explore certain categories. But one of the things it brings up for me as you speak about this is that it's also a really beautiful way to explore human experience and and to be a little bit more inclusive, right? Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes, depending on where we've lived and how much we have or have not traveled, 
we may feel like someone else's experience at the other end of the world is different from ours. And I think that your work and, and the work of other people who explore language offer us a chance to, to get that sort of connection. Yeah, I'm glad you thought that. I really think that too. And that's, for me, a really important part of the project because, you know, I say that, for example, finding these words, they can help like enrich the field of psychology and add to our conceptual networks and so on. But that's, that makes it sound almost transactional, like we're just simply just gaining from these words. But even aside from any value or utility we might find in the words, I find them really beautiful just in terms of engaging with and appreciating other cultures just for their own sake. You know, so even aside from what these words do to, like I say, they might be able to enrich psychology. They're just valuable in terms of, I think, helping me and hopefully other people, you know, encounter, engage with, understand, appreciate other cultures. And that in itself is really beautiful. Sometimes I'm trying to reconcile two seeming opposites. Like one is like universalism and one is pluralism, you know. So sometimes people tend to endorse one or the other, you know. So the universalist perspective is, well, there's just a common human nature and we're all the same, essentially. But the pluralist perspective is like, well, there's such diversity and difference through the, throughout the world and we're all quite distinct. And I think there's truth to both, right? And, you know, I think both things are true. It depends on the frame you use and the level at which you're looking at things. And I'm trying to keep both in mind in a sense. So when I look at another culture, on the one hand, there's a sense of trying to appreciate the commonality and the universality that we are all human beings with similar concerns and needs and wants and desires and so on. But without at the same time, just assuming we are all the same. So I'm also interested in the diversity and difference and appreciating that for its own sake. And I, I know people, you know, might find value in asserting one perspective or the other, but me personally, I'm trying to keep both in mind. I like that very much. Oh, good, good. I'm glad. And I, I find these words help me do that in a sense that I can find these points of commonality and universality. And then at the same time, like appreciate that the great differences between cultures and people and both things can be true and both things can be beautiful and important, I think. I completely side with you and it's a portal to exploring a different culture and a different experience, but, um, but it does yeah. make us understand a culture. In, in a fell swoop it, it, yeah I think so and I, well at least it has that potential and like I say to to have that twin sense of the universality and commonality and at the same time as respecting and valuing and appreciating diversity and difference and having both frames in mind and I certainly try and have that when I when I do this this work and this this kind of engagement that's wonderful so you have put out several books around these concepts, including uh, a dictionary. So I think that people are able then to contribute. And you also have a lovely Instagram yeah. where you put these different words into context, which I think is, is really effective. Oh, thank uh, and an you. easy way for people to sort of dip in and discover as a nice drip. I'm glad you like that. Yeah, that's been my happy words project, I called it when I've been doing this word of the day. So just to describe, you know, each day I try and find a nice picture or image or photo and put some text over and it's I try and relate it to something that's relevant. I really like that process of trying to bring in other artistic modalities, you know, because academic work can be sometimes 
quite, you know, well, it's unidimensional in the sense that it's just there on the page. And, you know, and I think if we can explore art to bring academic work to life, I really want to try and do that because it can be otherwise a bit dry and boring sometimes and Mm -hmm. not very engaging. Whereas a description in a sentence can only go so far, but sometimes an image might capture it. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So sometimes I have this grand idea where I'd like to, for each word of the day, I could not only find a piece of art, but write a piece of music for that word of the day. Maybe there's even an aroma associated with it. Basically make it multi-sensory, multi-dimensional. Maybe that's a bit ambitious, but at the very least I can find like a picture or an image to go mm. with the word to at least bring it to life a bit more. Sure. So that's what I've been trying to do on this Instagram. That's such a nice idea. Yeah, it's. It, I, I find that it's going to be an interesting way for people to easily engage with with your work because I think this is really where there's a possibility to to share it and just give it a little bit of a of a bigger reach than it does. And Instagram, I assume, is just one of those mediums that could get you to get engagement from anywhere around the world. Hopefully, yeah. I guess that's the cool thing about social media. Like I put them out on Twitter and on Facebook, the people there seem to appreciate it, which is the main thing. I've really been enjoying exploring, yeah, like getting the ideas and the work out there outside the traditional academic forums, because you want the work to make a difference in some way. You want it to reach people. And so this is, I think, a nice way of doing that to an extent. Yeah, I think so too. And also you've you've been quoted in, in numerous articles since you started this project as is very well documented on on your website. And clearly there seems to be an appetite, at least on the journalist side, and they seem to think it's going to be interesting, their readers, for for people to find a different way into positivity and well-being in their lives. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? There seems to be like a real natural interest, which makes sense, you know. I mean, when I first came across this notion of untranslatability, I was really engrossed by it and fascinated and it you know stands to reason that other people would be so you know and I'm certainly not the first person to be working in this area I've drawn on found inspiration in lots of other people who've already been working on notions of untranslatability and trying to convey them so it does seem there's a real appetite and it's such an I I guess an interesting and enjoyable way of engaging with other cultures I think. Mm -hmm. In the preface of your your book The Happiness Dictionary you quoted Wittgenstein and I thought that was such a beautiful and, and strong mention. You said Wittgenstein argues that the limits of our language define the boundaries of our world. Untranslatability means the term lacks an exact equivalent in another language, in our case, English. Excitingly, that's the big part, as we discover these words, the boundaries of our world expand accordingly. I thought that was such a, a wonderful way to encapsulate the opportunity of, of doing that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think that is the case. I mean, I should just say, like, I can't really pretend I fully understand Wittgenstein, but, you know, at least... <laughs> Neither you know can I. Mean? I. That, but like that, that quote certainly resonated with me and that sentiment because, mm. you know, well, there's many interesting debates to be had around the extent to which language and experience are tied together. And there are just real debates. Some people say that they're inextricably linked to the point where if you lacked a word for something, you may not even be able to experience that phenomenon. I mean, that's an extreme case. I think they're less tightly linked than that. You know, this goes back to the point where we're talking about, you can experience a phenomenon and lack a word for it, but then encounter a word that then has such a resonance for you because you can give voice to something you've experienced, 
which would make the point that you can experience something without having a word for it. And indeed, you can experience things without having language at all, I think, because if you couldn't, then, you know, pre-linguistic babies or like animals wouldn't be sentient or experience things. When obviously I would say they are. So you don't need language to have experiences. And indeed, many of our, you know, truly, I think many of our experiences are strictly speaking ineffable. We can't describe them, you know, they're very hard to convey unless the person you're talking to has had a similar experience. Like even with mundane things, like I couldn't describe what coffee tastes like unless you tasted coffee or something similar. And also every, depending where you get your coffee and how you make it. My version of coffee is very far from American coffee, for example. Yeah. And it's really weird because if I was trying this, I'm having coffee now and if I, well, it's kind of hot and bitter and slightly energizing, but that doesn't describe it. Like if you've not tasted coffee, that's not going to remotely convey what it actually tastes like. So strictly speaking, I do think most experiences are ineffable, but if you've had the experience or something similar, then you can, you can triangulate and get what it refers to, I think. So, but just to make the point that even while I don't think experience is determined by language it's certainly shaped and constrained by it and i think the language we have if not the experience itself then certainly the way we conceptualize it identify it represent it articulate it remember it all of that is very strongly influenced by the language we have at our disposal there's so many interesting areas of research and theorizing in relation to this not around untranslatability per se but for example you know, there's a very eminent psychologist, uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett. She, she's really prominent in terms of theorizing around the nature of emotions. And part of her work touches on this notion of emotional differentiation or granularity. And this is really a fascinating area of, I think, research and theory based on the idea that you can imagine two people having a very similar, having the same experience even. But person A really might lack a detailed vocabulary for conceptualizing and articulating it. Whereas person B might have a very differentiated and granular vocabulary, you know? So even though their experiences may be the same in terms of kind of the sensory input, let's say, the way in which they can understand and process and conceptualize and talk about and remember these experiences really do differ quite greatly depending on their degree of differentiation or granularity. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is too that these processes of differentiation or granularity, they're not just like static fixed traits, but, you know, skills people can develop. And, you know, you can find programs to help, for example, children develop their emotional lexicon, like teaching them new emotion words. So a child might be feeling a general negativity, let's say, but then trying to help them say, well, you know, is this sadness or is this frustration or is this anxiety, you know, giving them the emotional tools to... Mm. You know, so the experiences remain the same whether they know these words or not. Like they're just feeling this internal, you know, agitation, let's say. But, you know, a teacher might then try and help them put a label on that experience and they can understand it more precisely and then talk about it and helps them helps them understand and deal with it. So this is a kind of general, I guess, principle within notions such as emotional intelligence or regulation. The ability to mm. refine our understanding of our own experience. So this is where language comes into it, because the more linguistic tools we have at our disposal, the greater our vocabulary, the more you know, precisely we can understand our experiences and then 
you know, convey them, remember them, articulate mm-hmm. them, and just get mm-hmm. to grips with them. So there's an interesting link up there with the work I'm then doing in terms of identifying new or like concepts that we don't have in English because, like I say, I think these can help enrich people's experiential or emotional vocabularies, which, mm. you know, then you can make the point that that in itself could be conducive to well-being in as much as, you know, the work around emotional granularity or differentiation suggests that increasing these capacities can improve people's sense of well-being and behavior and other outcomes. Yeah. That's that's fascinating. I'm in the middle of the the very famous book by Paul Ekman and the Dalai Lama called Emotional oh, Intelligence. Nice. Yeah, so this is this is very much on my mind. When you speak of this, what it's making me think of is I don't think I was ever taught to label my emotions. It wasn't a thing that was done in yeah. the 80s. <laughs> no, maybe, maybe. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't something that was being done at home or at school. And I think that over the course of my studying to become a, a mindfulness teacher, obviously studying with Jack Cornfield and Tara Brack, who are both, you know, hold a PhD in psychology and are extremely uh, wonderful um, Buddhist yeah. teachers. It was fascinating to be taught this exploration of what is one's own feelings. Mm. Mindfulness of emotions as a practice is a, is a massively interesting and deepening field. And I think that the second level at which I was very interested to discover how it can really help shape not just our experience, but also our communication mm. is, I don't know whether you've uh, you've delved a little bit into nonviolent communication, the work of Mar- Marshall Rosenberg? Only, only lightly. I mean, I know of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because again, it, I mean, the premise is, apart from trying to, to state the facts first when addressing an issue, identifying our own feeling whilst not passing judgment on the feelings themselves, yeah. and then identifying the underlying want and need is massively difficult if you've never been taught to, yeah. to do that. It's, it's so difficult and such an important skill. You know, to go back to my, you know, talking about my PhD and then men developing this emotional intelligence really through meditation, they talked about this because they would talk about, you know, prior to encountering meditation, they really hadn't systematically introspected or engaged with their emotions, but they still, of course, experienced intense emotions and a lot of them talked about, getting lost in this in a maelstrom of you know turmoil and emotional difficulties that they had no distance from no way to get a handle on they just were what's the word swept up in the whirlwind you might say whereas like sitting in meditation as you'll know right you can step back and so-called you know decenter and observe these feelings this was a learning process for them learning how to just watch step back and observe mm-hmm. and then you know, give a name to feelings, start mm-hmm. to understand the feelings. And this was something they could systematically do through meditation. But the way they would describe it in their own personal story, mm-hmm. it's not something they'd really done before. They would just be caught up in the world within their emotions. But then meditation was this process of stepping back, starting mm-hmm. to see them with a bit of clarity and a bit of distance, giving a name to some of these emotions. And the way they told it, this was such a, you know, an important and beneficial process for them. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. So I'd like to jump on another concept that I read in one of your articles. And this one, I think, was in Psychology Today. 
And actually, I heard a podcast uh, where you also mentioned the this beautiful Greek word, which the origin of which I really like as well. You were exploring the meaning of, I don't know if I say it properly, eudaimonia. Eudaimonia. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Eudaimonia. Yeah. <laughs> I can say it in French, I feel, but I'm not <laughs> sure I can say it in English. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how that one Greek word can also be a window onto onto happiness. Oh yeah, that's such a cool word. And in fact, that's such an interesting example of psychology having engaged with an untranslatable word because that's been thoroughly incorporated into psychology, really drawing on teachings from classical Greece. It's such an interesting concept. I mean, in classical Greece, people like Aristotle tried to draw a distinction between hedonic forms of happiness, you know, just like basic pleasures and satisfactions or so on, and then what they would regard, and maybe scholars today might too, as kind of qualitatively deeper, perhaps, forms of happiness or well-being. And the term eudaimonia has emerged both in classical Greece and in modern scholarship to describe forms of well-being that aren't about these more sensory or hedonic pleasures or judgments of satisfaction, but around notions such as self-fulfillment, self-actualization, character development. I mean, it's been operationalized in modern psychology as including concepts such as, you know, meaning and purpose in life, mastery and so on. So the notion itself is really interesting because the prefix EU, you know, it's like good or beautiful or, you know, so you find that obviously with a bunch of different words. And then this notion of a daemon is interesting because it sounds like demon. But I mean, I think perhaps the best way to understand is like conscience in a sense, because, for example, like Socrates, he would talk about listening to his daemon, which you might see as like an inner voice. And well, if you're kind of religiously or mythologically inclined, you might see that as some kind of divine spirit, if you like. But it doesn't have to be viewed in those terms. You could just in modern secular terms, perhaps see it as like one's conscience. So having a good conscience, a good inner guide, let's say. So from that perspective, this type of eudaimonic happiness or well-being is about trying to, well, listen to this inner voice, this inner guide, and trying to develop one's character along those lines, pursuing virtue, pursuing mastery and sense of, of oneself and of the world. So it, it's like a really lovely concept. I mean, I don't think I've done it justice. It's quite a complex, multifaceted concept in itself, but it was important back in classical Greece and it's similarly been adopted in positive psychology as, you know, really important in terms of, let's say we're conceptualizing mm. happiness or well-being. They're not interchangeable, but let's use them that way for, just for now. This kind of conceptualization of happiness. And I mean, they're just too, not to go on another tangent, but I'm, I'm writing this other book at the moment about happiness. Like it's on happiness and looking at, well, one one aspect of the book is looking at different forms of happiness and whether this hedonic eudaimonic distinction is even sufficient. Because I think personally, there's other forms beyond that that could be added to the taxonomy if one likes. But at the very sure. least, if you're going to talk about forms of happiness, you can have those two, hedonic and eudaimonic. I obviously don't know the term well enough to be a good judge, but what it seems to mirror for me or where it takes me to is the notion of of integrity. So when you when you talk about good spirit or good conscience or that connection that Socrates was you know was listening to to his inner guide higher self whatever you want to call it it makes me think that it is linked to personal integrity would be eudaimonia related 
I think that's a really important concept and a really important component of eudaimonia to the point where I'm trying to think now, but if you weren't acting with integrity, could you be said to have eudaimonia? Maybe not because eudaimonia, you know, acting without integrity would mean you're acting, you know, not in accordance with who you are deep down or your, or your true self or your values or your purpose. So I think there is something about the notion of integrity, meaning that how you're acting, what you're doing is aligned with your core values, your inner potential, your, who you have the, you know, your authentic self, let's say. So I think, I think integrity would be a really important concept to bring in when thinking about eudaimonia. That's right. Yeah. I'd love to actually talk about one of my favorite words, which is the word harmony. So for me, it came up when I was a, I don't know, late teenager, early 20s. Everybody around me was talking about getting a tattoo. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just was trying to figure out what I would, if ever, would I put on myself. And I had just done my first, maybe my, my favorite sort of ever musical project. I'm exaggerating. It's not my favorite. <laughs> I had done a really fun musical project and it was a five-piece acapella vocal band. And I realized my favorite thing in the world was vocal harmonies. I geek out on vocal harmonies. Yeah, me too. I love that. It's amazing. And I could genuinely like, there's very few things that can transport me as much as that does. And so I was very curious when I saw that the words balance and harmony you named as really not just relevant qualities of well-being, but almost like you called it a golden thread. Would you mind speaking to that? I'm sure. Yeah, I've become engrossed in these notions of balance and harmony. I mean, I think going back all through my life, I've just been so drawn, like you say, to harmony. And, you know, in our band, we would always try and do these <laughs> intricate harmonies because I love that. I think it's so powerful. I suppose I should just preface this by saying the last couple of years, I've been involved with this really interesting initiative and project. It's called the Global Wellbeing Initiative. So it's a partnership between this Japanese research foundation called Wellbeing Planet Earth and Gallup, who do the kind of, you know, the well-known polling company, you know. So like Gallup have excelled in studying well-being globally since like 2005. You know, they've done their their annual Gallup World Poll and it includes measures for assessing well-being, mainly around life satisfaction and positive emotions. But you can make the critique of not just Gallup, but really most efforts to study well-being globally that the metrics they use could be considered western centric you know this is the critique that you can make of psychology more generally maybe even academia as a whole that it's you know goes back to what we talked about earlier there's a famous paper <laughs> published i think in 2010 about most people are not weird have you heard that phrase so this makes the point that most of psychology has been conducted by and on people from contexts that are western Mm-hmm. Uh, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So you get this weird acronym. Absolutely. And I, I read that on their website and that was that was very powerful for me. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's true. And this acronym really seemed to kind of capture and crystallize this issue that most research is, well, even just like American undergraduate students, but at the very least it's, you know, it's heavily based towards studying people in these weird contexts and also by scholars from those contexts, let's say well, like I say, psychology more generally, and it's influenced its conceptualization and metrics for studying well-being. You know, so we have measures such as life evaluation, life satisfaction. I think these are globally relevant. It's not these concepts only matter or are relevant to Western people or Western concepts. 
because people the world over can respond to the Gallup World Poll and do so meaningfully. Like the questions make sense to them. So these questions do play out worldwide. But the critique can be made whether these ideas are sufficient in terms of understanding well-being. Because this goes back to the point of what I mentioned about psychology, you know, doing well or what it has studied, but has it studied everything that's relevant? Are there things, are there concepts, theories that are missing from its understanding of the person of life? And so including in terms of well-being, are there elements to well-being that might be missing from our understanding based on the Western centricity of the field, let's say? So anyway, the essence of this Global Wellbeing Initiative is to try and explore this very question. How can we augment these existing measures of well-being? Not replace them, because like I say, I think measures like life satisfaction or evaluation, positive emotions are and will continue to be very relevant. So it's not about, well, we need to get rid of them and replace them with other ones. It's more, are they sufficient? Are they missing anything? Can we augment these? So as I say, even though Organizations like Gallup have studied well-being globally, like since, you know, decades now. The metrics they use could be considered Western-centric. So the premise of this initiative is to augment these measures with exploring other global perspectives. You know, what ideas, theories, perspectives on well-being might we find emphasized in other cultures, sure. uh, you know, in other world regions? So. It's such a fascinating project. And given its kind of origins in Japan with Wellbeing Planet Earth being a Japanese foundation, the initial focus has been on a Japanese and more broadly Eastern context. But I should just say the plan now is to kind of expand to look at other regions and cultures and world contexts. So it's not, it's a work in progress, let's just say. But because it, it's only been going a year or two, we've been identifying principles that we think have been, let's say, emphasized in those contexts. And so balance and harmony are two of the key ones. They're not the only ones. You know, you can find concepts like low arousal, positive emotions, like peace and tranquility, but also connection to the group, relationship to nature and so on. So it's not only balance and harmony, but they're, they're two of the key ones. But also I want to, I also think these are also globally relevant. They don't only matter to people in those contexts because, you know, even in the West, we have traditions of people emphasizing balance and harmony, you know, like in relation to, you know, virtues and character. Aristotle talks about the balance, you know, his golden mean between different extremes. So it's not that these are just Eastern concepts, but they have been, I think, more heavily emphasized and valued in those contexts. So in this project, we've been exploring these notions of balance and harmony and seeing like, how are these relevant to how we think about well-being? And the project is about trying to construct items based on these topics to include in Gallup World Poll, which we've now since well 2020 we've got items around balance and harmony and peace and tranquility and so on included in the world poll which is really exciting so collectively me and this this group of people this lovely group of people exploring balance and harmony and what what these mean and it's such a fascinating topic and to go back to what you mentioned i do think they are like a golden thread because something like balance and harmony you could construe these just in very narrow terms as like peace of mind let's say because they are linked to something like that. But actually, for me personally, I think almost look at any aspect of well-being, principles of balance and harmony apply there. Rarely, maybe if ever, can you say categorically the presence or absence of something is constitutive of well-being. But it's all about finding, for example, the right amount. 
So it doesn't mean like moderation or kind of splitting the difference or somewhere in between, but like, mm-hmm. you know, it applies across all dimensions of well-being. you know, whether that's behavior, you know, work-life balance is one example, but that's only one example. You know, there's, there's other forms of balance in relation to one's behaviors, mm-hmm. nutrition, sleep, exercise, emotions, character, cognition, attention. You mm-hmm. can look at all these different aspects of functioning or aspects of well-being and see principles of balance and harmony applying in relation to those phenomena. Yeah, it touches me very much because a few years ago, I, I was near burnout. Mm. Uh, I'm very happy to say I didn't burn out and I can tell that there's a difference in terms of <laughs> the recovery, which is, is very different. And I was chatting about this with this amazing naturopathic nutritional therapist called Karis Marsden a couple of weeks ago. And I think that the notion of balance is incredibly important because the idea, and I think that this is much more expressed in Eastern philosophies than it is in in the West, that notion that balance is rarely achieved when you swing very far one side and very far to the other. Balance is much more likely a sort of a journey and a dance where you go a little bit to the right and it's like, oh, that's not too much. Mm. And you want to recenter yourself. And balance also means that we have a point of grounding or connection to come back to. So I think that the language around it is incredibly powerful. That's why they make such good metaphors in the the articles that I saw you publish. I think, yeah, I think it is a really, a really key principle. Once you start to look for it, you can see it across all elements of life, really. You know, because I can take something like exercise, right? You know, exercise, I think most people would agree, is like, it's important for health and well-being. But it's well, how much exercise? It's a balance, isn't it? Because, you know, obviously you could under-exercise and not do enough, but you could also over-exercise and do too much. So it's like a balance. And then, yeah, take that line of thinking to everything. I was thinking, you know, it's even possible to like drink too much water. Like water is generally seen as, you know, pretty universally good for you, but you can drink too much. So you can look at almost anything and then it's not having its presence or absence necessarily, but finding some, some balance. Like I say, that's not simply splitting down the middle or finding some midpoint between two extremes, but just the right point. What's the, sure. what's the optimal point between the two? And so that's this notion of balance. And then harmony is super interesting because sometimes it gets used interchangeably with balance, but I think there's a reason people speak of balance and harmony. So they can't be the, the same thing semantically or functionally in a sense. So the way I try to understand it is I think in life, there are many different balancing acts one would want to, would want to strike. So a balance with respect to like work and life and emotions and exercise and nutrition, and whatever, all these different things you'd want to have a balance with respect to each of those. But then harmony is the overall configuration of these balancing acts. That's the way I've tried to differentiate the term, the two. You know? That's interesting. I was thinking about it in, I don't know whether that's going to make sense to you, but we are so, we are so many different people, right? We're different yeah. people to different situations at different ages. So we are one and singular, but we're also multiple. I imagine harmony as allowing the presence of all of these multiple beings, acknowledging all of the facets of that we are. Again, bringing that notion of integrity. Yeah, that's such a lovely way of putting it. Because yeah, I think internally we are many people ourselves. So there's harmony at a personal level. And then of course, Mm -hmm. like as societies, we, we are made of many people. So there's a harmony in terms of how we all come together as, as people. Absolutely. As well, you know. And also beyond people per se, you want to, humans need to be in harmony with the environment, which has its own needs and balances and so on. So 
we want to speak of being in harmony, like like you say, internally with ourselves, being in mm-hmm. harmony with the people around us, but being in harmony with like nature and the environment as yeah. well. I could speak about harmony forever. <laughs> yeah. It's such <laughs> a lovely, that, yeah, it's it, The way I was thinking about it, because I wrote a, a very musical metaphor around it, is that I think that what I loved about the musical side of vocal harmonies is mixing different sounds and textures and tones. And mm. I guess that harmony has a touch of an inclusivity of the diverse tones yeah. or the diverse facets of ourselves or That's the true. world around us. That's true. And actually that reminds me of what we were talking about earlier about like holding in mind universality and pluralism, because like, you know, say a group of people, we all are unique and different. So you don't want to like mash everyone together and make everyone be uniform, which would be, I guess, you know, everyone's singing in the same notes, let's say. So the lovely thing about harmony is people can express their own melodies and obviously you can this generalizes to life like people can express themselves in their unique ways or unique personalities yeah. and yet somehow the overall configuration still is this beautiful gestalt you know so exactly it doesn't take away people's uniqueness their own character or authenticity but it does mean these are coming into being in a way that like complements each other yeah i love harmony yeah <laughs> i'm gonna have to figure out a way to get back and just That's make some cool. music I, I, I love the fact that you're also a musician. That's very nice. That's a nice point of connection too. Like that. Yeah, that's really funny. So oh, one quick question that obviously I like very much the idea of is how do you feel about trying to create new words? Oh, that's such a cool idea. I love doing that. You know, I've been really inspired by this guy called John Koenig or Koenig. I'm not sure how you say it. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He's got this project called the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows which is an amazing project. It's, it's really mind-blowing. They're not all sorrowful words. I mean, they're just the interesting emotional states. Some of them are more melancholic than others, but some are just very beautiful and profound in other ways. And what he's done is create words. He's created words for these states. He's got this online dictionary, and there's so many different words there. But most of the states, they're ones that you would resonate with, you would recognize. I don't know what one comes to mind, like he's one opia, O-P-I-A, and it's like the ambiguous intensity of eye contact, right? That's really cool. Oh my and, God, that's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And there's like, just like hundreds of like that. And it's really neat because like when you're creating words, like, you know, say, I'm trying to think, Lewis Carroll created words, but he did so in a way that was like obviously made up in a sense. I know all words are made up in a sense, but you could obviously tell that these were created out of unusual syllables let's say syllables don't normally go together let's say that's what makes his the work so kind of creative and odd in that sense by contrast with this guy john coney he'll use he'll use roots from existing languages so like this opia like the op prefix it refers to things to do with the eyes so you think like myopia so optometry Exactly. Yeah. So this op, you know, from Greek, it does relate to the eyes. So when you talk about opia, it sort of makes sense that it's to do with something around the eyes. So he'll use existing roots, but just play with them in interesting ways. So they sound like they're creations, but they sound like real words that exist in a sense. So it's, it's such a cool project. So he does these you know, very creative artistic videos where he kind of narrates the word and so on. Anyway, I got, I got really inspired by this project. So I tried to create a few myself because for example, I was really interested in, 
I got really interested recently in the notion of energy. You know, when you can say like a person, they have good energy or they've got weird energy or they've got bad energy. You know, like what are we doing when we say that phrase? It's like we're talking about the concept of personal energy or vitality is close, but it's, it's such an interesting area that we really lack a good language for. So anyway, I using that, we've spoke earlier about the EU prefix meaning good. So I just, I smushed that together with energy, you know, unity for good energy. Right. So that was one. And I, and then another one. Oh, that's I a did, good one. That could catch on. Did it not catch on? I don't know. I, I wonder if it's too awkward, but it could catch on. I, anyway, I felt like we need a word for good. I mean, we obviously have the phrase good energy, but it felt like, well, why not have a word for it too? And then I had another one because I was listening to this song by, do you know, John Grant. I had this very strange feeling when I was listening to it because the, the beat of the music was very energetic, but his singing was very tranquil. So I had this real sense of being energized and yet peaceful. It was very strange. This so a kind of a mixed kind of emotion where I felt propelled forward, but in a way that I was very calm when I was listening to it. I used the prefix that relates to a Greek word for like peacefulness, Irene. I'm not sure I'm saying that quite right, but I I, I mushed that together with energy. So Irene. <laughs> so it's for this like peaceful energy. Anyway, so I did them as two of my words of the day a while back, a few months back. I apologize. I missed them. <laughs> That's fantastic. And you know what? I'm writing a blog post today about energy and vitality. Oh, no <laughs> That's really funny. I'm in this group called the Bento Society. That's oh, a long, you know, the Bento Society? No, but I heard it. I was, that was another one of my words, I think. Bento. Anyway, yes, that sounds very oh, cool. Oh, you should definitely check out Bento. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're going to really like the work of, of Yancy Streckler, who's the, oh. he's the, that's it. I listened to a podcast with him. That was it. Yeah. 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 He's fantastic. Mm. So we were in a bento group on Sunday. They do weekly Zoom gatherings. And nice. we ended up having this discussion around, around boundaries, how to say no, but mm. almost the guide being looking after our own energy. And we even talked about energy budget. Right, because if you overspend yourself, you know you have nothing left to give, and and also if you're not receiving sufficiently, and that's been a really interesting area of exploration in my personal life in the last couple of weeks. So, mm. looking forward to hearing more about your words. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's so interesting. I've also been focused on vitality too recently because I don't know if I, you know, going back to my lexicon. You know, one way I've looked at the words is to analyze them thematically. Right, that's the approach I've taken. Is to look for common themes and then in doing that I'm trying to create this overarching conceptual map that has like so far 12 12 main categories for seven of them so far I've written a paper just on that category like really diving right in detail into that like one on love and one on pro-sociality eco-connection one on spirituality but anyway one of these 12 categories is vitality and so just the past few weeks I've been trying to write a paper just focused on that because it's so interesting and so I think underexplored and underappreciated sure. because, you know, it's really missing. Well, it's not missing, but not very present in psychology, this notion of vitality and the notion of, <laughs> to go back to that metaphor we had with physical and mental well-being being on a spectrum. You know, when I said with mental well-being, there's a negative territory which is kind of psychiatric, you know, you know, negative emotions and even psychiatric illnesses and issues. And then there's positive territory where we have notions like happiness and flourishing and so on. 
Then on the physical well-being spectrum, you know, in the negative territory, we have kind of physical illnesses and disorders and disabilities and so on. But there's the whole positive realm of the physical spectrum that really hasn't been paid much attention to, really. Yeah. You know, notions like vitality and, you know, we were really struggling with this because we wanted to include this in our global well-being initiative, like an item around this territory in the World Pole. And we really struggled to find a language because you can't find many scales or questionnaires around this. And the ones that do are quite archaic. They ask about like vim and vigor, which are, <laughs> what even are they? And then, so we really struggle to find appropriate language mm. because we just don't have a very granular or detailed lexicon or terminology mm. for talking about these, you know, the physical, the positive aspects of our physical being. So mm. vitality is one, I think, but I think in itself, it's a, a kind of a vast complex landscape so vitality mm -hmm. is just a, maybe a broad overarching term but we would ideally want to develop a more granular lexicon for this aspect of our physical being that's for example like these trying to create words for different types of energy you know that's a t an attempt to get towards greater granularity but that's only i think scratching the surface to be honest because i've been thinking about yourself like you say you've been dwelling on vitality so many nuances to it and different aspects and different types. As a society, we haven't really mm -hmm. given it much conceptual attention, I wouldn't say. And yeah, it's fascinating because I'll share with you a little bit of my, of my experience and what has led me to this point where I'm sort of pulling a, a red thread, I guess. So I started being very interested in yoga in, in my mid-20s really only starting to get teachers I liked only in my thirties onwards mm. when I was in London. And it's only after I explored yoga that I got into meditation, but quite a while later. I mean, mm. <laughs> but one of the things that I'm pulling at is the relationship between mind body and the affect between the two. Mm. I find that it's very easy as a human being to be trapped in what I like to call the mental control tower. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and so not paying attention to the levels of our vitality and energy, mm. the quality of our experience and the messages it's trying to give us. And I think that the beauty of, of getting deep into the studies in mindfulness of thought, emotion, breath, body, et cetera. Mm. And I'm starting to understand the, the benefits of understanding the physical cues. Mm as well as the observation on the emotional side. So that's why I think that this exploration around what state are we in? Are we capable of defining that state? Mm. What should we do to better our state? And that's a question that I think we need to ask ourselves as individuals, mm. as communities, as groups, because the great thing about energy is we can switch it. I don't know whether you've encountered that in any of your either your studies or your personal explorations in meditation, but there are ways to change your state yeah. in, in a matter of minutes, just with breath work, you know? You know, I, in terms of my practice, I to some extent have encountered that. And, you know, in this work around language, finding in other languages, a very detailed lexicon in relation to these embodied states. You know, when you think about, in Chinese, for example, the notion of qi, and there's so many compound terms using qi, or like the notion of chakras and those and prana and those types of things in 
and a, a more Indian context. And I think they have a very detailed language and lexicon, which, you know, so that's part of what my project has been in relation to vitality, looking at, at those languages in particular. And but having that language can be so helpful in terms of understanding our embodied experience. Cause you know, I resonate with what you're saying. And I think me personally, maybe this is true of people in a Western context in general, we tend to sort of live in our heads, but we have this embodied experience, but we're just not very good at constructively engaging with it or understanding it. We lack the vocabulary, you know, as we've just been talking about, we obviously still have this embodied experience that we're just sort of perhaps disconnected or alienated from it, or it's just this thing that we're not really, have much agency or control over a much of a an intelligent connection with i don't think we've been taught to engage with our body to be honest and that's why something like yoga you think well why is yoga taken off so wildly in the west it's because it's giving people a, a a language and a technique for engaging with their bodies that they've been obviously lacking because that's why it's in people are embracing it in and similar things whatever tai chi other forms of martial arts they're just ways for people to engage with their body and it's like no wonder people across the west have engaged them and embraced them because we seem to lack our own you know let's say the west western cultures haven't had a good record of developing that not not that they've been absent completely but they've not had a good record of developing practices and traditions for helping people engage productively with their like embodied experience so and yeah. i think that's that's why partly why one of the reasons why yoga has become so phenomenally popular yeah, and I think it was also one of those tools that just lets you access the body without judging the body. So, you know, some people say it's a sin, some people say it's a miracle. Where are we in the middle? <laughs> you don't really know how to treat it. So being able to be in a practice that's relatively non-judgmental is probably one of the reasons it's helpful. I'm super looking forward to what you're going to be doing around that, those words. Oh, yeah. And well, hopefully we'll have a, a paper to share soon. Because I've looked in a couple of colleagues to help me work in it, which has been really interesting. And that will hopefully be ready fairly soon. It's something I want to keep on thinking about and exploring, maybe creating some more new words. I want to keep a lookout for that. Oh, you should it's, really it's, do that. It's a really fun exercise when you, when you start getting, because it's quite liberating to think, well, hey, why not just create a word? So I, you know, inspired by John Koenig, I'm going to try and do other ones, I think, if I can. Awesome. So, I ask all of my guests, what's their favorite word? So for you, it's going to maybe take on a deeper meaning. Can I ask you, I mean, do you have just one or? Well, I was, you know, the one that comes to mind and it's, but it's quite like, what's the word? I don't know. Obvious in a way, but is the word love? You know, it just seems so, I don't know, integral and important to everything. There's like a line in a Jack Johnson song. It's like, love is the answer to most of my questions. I think that's how it goes. Something like that. Anyway, I always thought that's that's a good way of putting it. So maybe I, I think I'd pick that word. It's, you know, it's so important to everything we do and who we are. It could even be the force that, you know, moves the planets and the stars. I forget who said that. But the, anyway, it's. I think it's a possibly, you know, some kind of universal force at the very least it's just integral to, you know, being human, to all our relationships, to what we do. It's, you know, we have to, you know, love the people around, but love what we do. Try to love who we are. Try to love the world. You know, it's just, yeah, that's, I think that's the word that's coming to mind. Thank you for that. I'd love to also know what 
And so that could be interesting too. <laughs> what song best represents you? Oh my gosh. That's such a hard question. Because, you know, for different moods, you know, yeah. I guess I could give you a few based on different kind of aspects of me. You know, maybe one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. Do you know Arvo Part? And he has this, I wouldn't call it a song. I guess it's a piece. Spiegel im Spiegel. So does that mean mirror in the mirror, I think? I oh, think yes, it is. He's an, he's an Estonian composer and he's quite modernist. And to be honest, normally I, could, I couldn't stand modernist classical music, but this is amazing because if you Google it, honestly, put it on, find a, find a recording and just like sit back and let it wash over you. It's incredible because it's, it's these essentially repeated triplets of notes. It's so simple, very minimalist, but it's so beautiful. I had this experience when I, because with the band, we used to play the Edinburgh Festival a lot. And plus, I lived in Edinburgh for 10 years. I, you know, I really love the city of Edinburgh, so got a real deep connection to it. And one time at the festival, I stumbled across this church. We were doing concerts by candlelight, you know, and I, I didn't really know any of the program, what was playing. But I, I sat there, and this was one of the pieces, and I'd never heard it before. And I had this most amazing experience of, like, almost like climbing this stairway up into the heavens. If you listen to the music, you'll see what I mean. It's like it keeps on kind of climbing and climbing that's incredible. So that's definitely one of my all-time favorite pieces. Awesome. But then, <laughs> but then like in another mood, I want to say like Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. Like that was my favorite song, I think, at points. And yeah, so somewhere between those two, perhaps that's my character. I don't know. That's wonderful. Do you know what I had copied and pasted in my notes, the Times article, and you cite this Arabic word called tarab. which describes musically induced ecstasy. (laughs) (laughs) That feels right on the money here. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. So honestly, I think you'll do Google that song and anyone listening. It's, it's amazing. Wonderful. What did you want to be when you, when you were a kid? Oh, I, you know, either a footballer or a musician, like, you know, Gary Lineker as a footballer, let's say. And then I wanted to be, (laughs) I guess different musicians at different points. Like I wanted to be Slash from Guns N' Roses, you know, the guitarist. quite cool. That's pretty cool. (laughs) But then like David Bowie and Manu Chow, he's a, when I was a bit older, you know. Oh, he's amazing. I love Manu Chow. Yeah, me too. Well, this is what we tried to sound like as a band. We we tried to emulate him or very much in that vibe. So I would say footballers are musicians. Yeah, and that's probably still the case now, I guess. <laughs> like, like now I'm thinking like Tom Waits or someone like that, you know. Sure. Yeah. Now, can you tell me what is the best advice you've ever been given? Oh gosh, that's hard. Well, this just comes to mind in terms of, I think I've received lots of good advice over the years. But you know that phrase, this too will pass? That's a pretty good piece of advice, I think, as as things go. like. Uh, yeah, that's also come to mind a lot of this past year as well. There's this film podcast that I like listening to, um, Simon Mayo and Mark Kermode. It's called Wittertainment. They do, it's, it's a film podcast from What's Britain. What's it called? Well, Wittertainment, but it, it's Simon Mayo and Mark Kermode, and it's a film podcast, and they just talk in depth about films and life in general, and it's, it's a great podcast. But especially over the past year, they were having kind of wisdom from Tom Hanks, <laughs> as a way of kind of closing the show, let's say. And then... Oh, I love that. It was in, it was in, in relation to that, they sort of talked a lot about this notion, 
they asked him, I think, what his piece of advice was. And he said this too will pass. And anyway, that's something that comes to mind right now and I think has been helpful over the past year. Actually, can I ask you, given that you're a meditator yourself and what has what has worked for you? What has supported you over the past year? Is there any rituals or practices that you go to on a daily basis or that you find very grounding? You know, I've tried to be better about maintaining a practice. What I found helpful over the past year, I subscribed to Sam Harris's Waking Up app, which I found really helpful because, you know, I was involved for that time with the meditation community in London that I studied, but I've never really had a community that I'm part of, which on one hand, I really feel like I would like a community in that sense. But anyway, for one reason or another, never been part of a stable meditation community or had a a teacher that I've followed particularly. So I've kind of just been sitting on my own doing mindfulness of breathing, which it's like, it's okay, but I perhaps not really getting very far with it. And then over the past year or so, you know, I love Sam, you know, Sam Harris and his, his podcast anyway. I really, really like him. I listen to his podcast very regularly. Yeah, yeah. me too. So I love this podcast. And then he was obviously talking about doing the app. So I signed up for the app and I found it really useful because, you know, it's 20 minutes per day, but I can really make a habit of at least doing those 20 minutes. And I really like that he mixes it up too, because he, you know, as you'll know, he, he gets into some really interesting territory, you know, you know, he, he did a, an interview, I think with Douglas Harding, who wrote that book, you know, on having no head and this notion of these, you know, decentering from the notion of self by experiencing the world as if we didn't have a head and what's it like to cease to see this distinction between inside and outside and self and other and so on. And the fact that he managed to like bring these into these 20 minute meditations, I feel is, is amazing. So I've really been getting a lot out of his, his app, I'd say. Thanks for sharing that. I haven't tried the app yet. It's really um, good. It's really good. But it's just because I already have quite a bunch of teachers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you know, so I think that's why. If you've got teachers, that's probably, I think you're probably doing fine. It's, yeah, for me, I just feel it would have been nice to have found a teacher. Maybe I still will, but at the very least I've been... <laughs> finding him helpful. So that's been nice. Sure. Well, now that you're on the West Coast of the US, uh, you should really go and check out the Spirit Rock uh, Meditation Center in Jack Cornfield. Well, I love Jack Cornfield. I mean, obviously I've never met him. I just like, heard him talking. Love and, him. Yeah. Well, this, <laughs> I would love to do that because coming out of lockdown, I'd love to be able to try and go to places like that and maybe try and find a community. So that's, I think, something I'll hopefully do. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's close to you, so that's wonderful. Um, that's what would you say to your younger self if you could send yourself a message? No. Maybe something along the lines of like, don't panic, it's going to work out all right. You know, because at the time, you can always just think, I'm never going to have X, Y, or Z or do this. But then, you know, not saying everything works out, but like a lot of it does. And often in ways you can't anticipate or foresee and it's can often be for the best and in ways you can't even appreciate or even see at that, at that age. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say, yeah. And be grateful for it all, you know, be grateful for it all. Even, you know, looking back, even times where I thought I was experiences looking back that I'm really grateful for, perhaps at the time I didn't appreciate. And so I'm really trying to have that, in my life now, being aware of, you know, how fortunate I am to have the experiences and the love and the, the life that I do and to be grateful for it as it's happening at the time. I don't always manage that, of course. 
it's so easy for life to pass us by and to to overlook the amazing things that we do have in life you know even amid the amid challenges and so on so trying to be grateful and i guess i would say that too just to enjoy the ride as much as you can yeah that's beautiful and so my closing question is what brings you happiness you know the first answer is just you know loved ones definitely first and foremost really so grateful for my you know my wife and my family and like our dog and my friends and, and so on and then like beauty nature being outside reading meeting new people talking to you this is great like just there's yeah there's lots to be grateful for and lots of places to find happiness i think there are you know you know even amidst all the the kind of chaos and challenge in the world there is also so much beauty to it i think as well well, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time today. I really am very grateful for it. It was such an enlightening interview. And also it was such a pleasure to discover your work, to read it. And I hope that this will give our listeners, you know, the the desire to discover your books, your work and the Happy Words Project on Instagram. Well, great. It was really lovely talking with you. It was very nice. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. So I'll put all of the links in the show notes for everyone to find you. And I will leave you on that. Thank you so much, Tim, and have a lovely rest of the day. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks again to Tim for being my guest on the show today. So you can find him online, of course, at www.drtimlomas.com. You can also find him on Twitter at Dr. Tim Lomas. You can contribute your suggestions for the Lexicography Project to the project's Facebook page, The Happy Words Project. And you can also follow the project on Twitter and Instagram, which includes really wonderful word of the day features. So friends and listeners, that's it for this episode. Thank you again for joining me. All of the links, of course, are in the show notes. If you want to hear more, please go to your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. And if you care or if you have time, leave us a review. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter or on Instagram and follow Out of the Clouds at underscore Out of the Clouds on Instagram, where I too share some guided meditations and other daily musings about mindfulness. You can also find me and all projects at anvimulatano.com. Sign up to receive email updates on all the fun things I am doing. And that's it. Thanks again for listening to Out of the Clouds. Until next time, be well, be safe, take care. <laughs>